Welcome back to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries Unity in Christ program. If this is your first time listening, my name is Christine Kim and I am the host of this program. Have you ever had a time when someone's thoughtless words hurt your feelings? The person who may have said those words may not even remember saying them, but those words can remain in your head for the longest time. I'm pretty sure we've all at least experienced a situation like this at least once. A short while ago, my younger brother said to me, you seem like a different person when you are at home than when you are at church. I was a bit shocked hearing my brother say this and was not able to respond back to him. I wasn't even able to ask him, how do you think I am different at home from church? The reason I couldn't ask him was because I knew better than anyone what he was talking about. Is there anyone outside the family whom I live with that knows me better? In front of others, I may act holy and Christian, but looking at my life, there is nothing different in my lifestyle than the lifestyle of people in the secular world. I say that I am a Christian, but if the life I live and seen by my own family shows no display of Jesus being lived out, what words are needed to explain anything? I may feel sad and hurt by the many non-believers in my life that haven't accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, but what use is all of that if I am not living out as a life that Jesus Christ wants me to live? I felt embarrassed at the thought that I may potentially be the biggest barrier in someone's life to meeting Christ. What about our listeners? To non-believers in our lives, our spouses, friends, family members, or co-workers, what kind of Christian life are we showing them? By looking at us in our lives, are they seeing the Jesus that we say we have living in our hearts. Who, O Lord, could save themselves, their own soul could heal? Our shame was deeper than the sea, your grace is deeper still.
remember hearing a testimony of a North Korean missionary. He was a United States citizen living in North Korea. Although his main purpose of living in North Korea was to spread the gospel, because it was very dangerous to speak about Christ, he had to be very careful. If he was caught spreading the gospel and the North Korean officials were notified of this, he was at a high risk of being captured and taken by the North Korean government, and eventually he would no longer be able to step foot into the country of North Korea. Hearing this, I had a curious thought in my mind as to how they would be able to spread the gospel. If you went to North Korea as a missionary to spread the good news, but were not able to evangelize or speak about Christ, then of course reading or passing out Bibles would not be possible. Then how would you be able to evangelize at all? But as I continued to listen to this missionary's testimony, he said that he quietly took care of the homeless and poor, fed hungry children, and lived and cared for the orphans. His ultimate way of evangelizing was by serving these people. He did not speak once about Christ while doing any of this. But as time went on, people began to ask the missionary this question. If you are a United States citizen and can live freely in America, what are you doing living in a place like North Korea? And to this question, this missionary responded saying this, Because the grace I have received is so great, I couldn't live not sharing this grace with others. The missionary continued to say that those who asked him this question knew where this source of grace came from. They knew because of Jesus, this missionary came to serve them in North Korea, and it explained why he was able to do these great unexplainable things he was doing. Although this missionary did not evangelize using words or even directly speaking the words of Christ, the people whom he was serving began to become curious of Jesus 
through him. Although it has been a while since I have heard this testimony, recently his testimony has been coming to my mind. Perhaps we may be saying too much to the world. Non-believers don't observe the words we speak, but rather they observe our actions. As we start to live out the good that Christ has allowed us to live, we might spark the curiosity in people that they may start to wonder about this Jesus we love, and perhaps His glory may be revealed through our good acts. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under foot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. These are the scriptures of Matthew chapter five, verse thirteen through fifteen. Are we living as witnesses of Christ? Do people wonder about Christ who lives within you? Do people see that Jesus? Living within your hearts when they see you. Seems like all I could see was the struggle. Wrap. 
So I'll shake off these heavy chains And wipe away every stain Cause I'm not who I used to be I am redeemed You said me Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Jesus is Better, Part 2, based on Hebrews Chapter 1. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. The book of Hebrews has so much truth in it. To those who say we need an Aaronic priesthood, and they claim to have conferred that priesthood upon their young men. And others claim that within their church they have a Melchizedekian priesthood. A priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. I have to say, wait a minute. Haven't you read the book of Hebrews which says, Jesus has taken care of the line of Aaron. Jesus is a king priest. And there is no priesthood anymore to be conferred on anybody. Because he is the great high priest of his people. You see, so many of the cults are answered in the book of Hebrews. And my heart just breaks for people who haven't sat down and they haven't read the message, they don't understand the message of the book of Hebrews, they don't understand the truths, because it seems like Satan doesn't have a very big bag of tricks. He just keeps using them over and over and over again throughout the centuries. And things that were issues in the first century that are addressed here in this letter are the things that the church still faces today. False teachings that the cults bring to us. People coming to our door, knocking on our door, telling us that we have to believe this, telling us that they're God's only true place or church. We have to understand, wait a second, that's not God's message. For those who say it doesn't matter how we live, that we can go ahead and live any way we want. Have you not read Hebrews chapter 11 and chapter 12? Where it says that we are admonished to walk by faith, to not live according to this world, to pattern our lives after the patriarchs and prophets of the Old Testament, those who laid down their lives for God. That we are to run with the idea that there is a great cloud of witnesses watching us. And we've got to finish this race. We've got to run this race. And we've got to hear the well done, good and faithful servant at the end of our race. We're to run it with endurance. Laying aside the sins that so easily beset us and fixing our eyes upon Jesus. Who's the author and finisher of our faith. 
For those who say it doesn't matter how you live, haven't you read Hebrews which says, the Lord says, I'm not afraid that if you're my child, I'm not afraid to discipline you and correct you. For as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So do not despise the correction of the Lord. If you can't get away with anything, you ought to be praising God according to the book of Hebrews because it means you're a child of God. (laughs) Somebody was telling me yesterday about a, or a day or so ago about a situation in their family where someone kept getting caught and caught and caught and caught. (laughs) And I said, praise God. (laughs) It's evidence they're a child of God. You can get away with it. Maybe you're not a child of God at all. Hebrews 13, such a beautiful book, which admonishes us to follow the Lord, to pursue godly relationships, and encourages us in Jesus' name to follow those and love those who have shared the truth with us, to submit to those who lead us in the Lord so that their hearts aren't grieved as they lead us because it wouldn't be profitable for us for them to lead us and serve us with their hearts grieving. What a book. Our Lord is better. In a day when everybody wants to kind of equalize all religions and say, well, Christianity is Islam, is Buddhism, is Judaism, is Hinduism, is... We have to say, I'm sorry, but I've read the book of Hebrews. And what we have is better. Amen? What we have is better. It's better than any religion that man can offer. Let's begin Hebrews chapter 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. What an incredible introduction. What incredible two verses. God. It begins with God. God. Spoke in the Old Testament through prophets in many portions, in, in many ways. We have the Old Testament books of the Bible. We look at the Scriptures and we see that God would speak through dreams. God would speak directly to some of the prophets through visions. God would send the angel of the Lord who was the pre-incarnate Christ, not a created being, but the messenger. Angelos means messenger of the Lord. He would appear and speak to them. At other times, the Lord would, would put a burden on a prophet's heart and they would write. The Lord would predict events before they would occur. Many portions in many ways through the prophets... But God in these last days, verse 2, has spoken to us. And the Greek indicates that He has spoken to us once and for all. Note that. God has spoken. The Greek says, has spoken once and for all time. This is it. 
No more news. No more stuff to come. No more last day prophets. God has spoken once and for all through His Son. Jesus is God's last word. Amen? We don't need anybody's last day prophet books. We don't need another testament of Jesus Christ. We don't need a book of anything other than the New Testament. God has spoken. What he said through Jesus is the complete message. It's enough. It's all God wants us to know. Jesus is God's revelation of his heart, of his will, of his purpose, of his salvation, of his plan. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. It could be translated through his son, by his son. He's spoken. Jesus is the one whom God appointed heir of also heir of all things through whom also he made the world. Jesus is not simply a semi-god. Jesus is fully God as we will see as we read the next couple of verses and He is heir of all things. Everything that God, the God of the Old Testament has, is Jesus Christ's. In fact, he says, Jesus Christ created the world. When we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, John 1.1 says that Jesus was the one who created this. It was Jesus In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were created by Him, and was not anything created that was made. Jesus is the one who created this world. The book of Colossians chapter 1 tells us that it was His words that were spoken. He spoke the words that that created this universe, and it's through Jesus Christ that everything holds together. People are looking at subatomic particles now and they're trying to figure out what is holding the universe together. What is the glue that's sticking the universe together? I'll tell you. The book of Colossians says it's Jesus Christ. He's who holds the universe together. Our Lord, our Savior. And this is the message of Hebrews chapter 1. Through Him, God made the world. Verse 3. And He is the radiance of His glory. That is, Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. And the exact representation of His nature. And upholds all things by the word of His power. He's saying Jesus is the Shekinah glory of God. We talk about it when, when God was, His glory would be over the tabernacle in the wilderness. Remember that glory cloud that, followed his, that led Israel throughout the wilderness? Jesus is that glory of God. Whenever you saw the glory of God on earth, that was Jesus, he's saying. When the glory of God filled the temple, Jesus is that, that radiance of God's glory. The, world, the word effulgence, he is, we, we can't see the sun. But we can see the glory of the sun, can't we? And so it is, no one has seen God at any time, but we can see the glory of God in Jesus Christ. When we look at Jesus, we see God's glory. When he made pure, and he's the exact representation. You've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. That's exactly what Jesus said too, wasn't it? 
The disciples asked, Lord, show us the Father and it will be enough for you. And Jesus says, how long have I been with you? And you say, show us the Father. What do you mean? If you've seen me, (laughs) you have seen the Father. In his character, in his dealings with people, in his teachings, in his standard of rightness, in, in his sacrifice, in his love, you've seen God. Jesus is God. That's our statement of faith. Verse 3b, when he had made purification of sins, when Jesus by himself had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now, this begins one really long sentence that I think in English class I would have gotten in a lot of trouble for. How about you? Remember your English teacher talking to you about run-on sentences? You cannot do it because you are not inspired. All right? <laughs> and no, it won't, you can't... You know, set, your English teacher drops you two grade points because of your run-on sins. You say, well, I, God inspired it. They're not going to buy that, okay? <laughs> but, but this is one long thought here. And the author of Hebrews, whoever he is, the Holy Spirit says, this is cool, you just wrap your mind around this. This is big. This is cool. There's one huge thought. His thought is, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then he's going to take eight chapters to kind of rabbit trail. But within it, there is this huge pattern unfolding. It isn't really a rabbit trail. After all, it, it really is planned. It is reasoned beautifully. It's It's stupendous, truly. When he sat down, when he had made purification of sins, you have to understand that that's Day of Atonement talk, Yom Kippur talk. There was one day in the Jewish calendar that was the holiest day of all the year. It was a day when all Israel fasted. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. He would go in with blood. He would go in with much incense. The scapegoat had been sacrificed and it would be at that time that he would make atonement for all the sins of Israel that had been merely covered for that year by the sac- daily sacrifices. And if his, the sacrifice that he offered was accepted, then all the sins of Israel were forgiven for that year. Of course, if he wasn't accepted, Israel would be rejected. I was looking forward to the day when the Lamb of God would come. And he would take away the sins of the world. It's looking forward to the day when Jesus Christ would come and he would forever cancel all our sins. He would wipe them away. They wouldn't just be covered. They'd be canceled. They'd be evaporated like the sun evaporates the fog. And so that day was, came when Jesus died on the cross and when he rose from the dead. And so when he says, when he had made purification of sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You have to understand, too, that no Old Testament priest could ever sit down. Ever. During his ministry. There's no place to sit in the tabernacle or the temple. Even the vessels that were fashioned for 
The service of the temple were made in such a way that the bottoms were cone-shaped so that you could not set them down. Anything that held blood could not be set down. You had to hold it. You had to pour it out. You had to carry it. You had to apply it. But you could never set it down because the work was never done. But Jesus came. And Jesus finished the work. On the cross, He cried out, It is finished. And he sat down. Well, I have to think, well, where could a priest sit if he could sit? Oh, we know. There's only one place in the temple that anything is called a seat. In the Holy of Holies, there was an article of furniture called the Ark of the Covenant. Within the Ark of the Covenant was the Ten Commandments. There was Aaron's rod that had budded and there was a golden pot of manna. And over that, the covering of that was a slab of gold. And upon that slab that was the top of that box over which two cherubim looked down with their wings covering it was the place where on the Day of Atonement the high priest would sprinkle the blood and make purification for the sins of Israel. That place was called the mercy seat. It represented the throne of God. God's throne guarded by the cherubim. God's throne, the place of glory. It was between the cherubim that the glory of God radiated from in the Holy of Holies. And it was that place where the blood was sprinkled that Jesus sat down. The work is done. It's finished. He sat down. Our priest has finished the work for us. Beautifully typified, by the way, at resurrection morning. When the disciples go and they look in the grave and they're seated on one side and the other were two angels. And it says that Peter looked in and immediately he believed. And the word is, he a dawned, he saw something, it dawned on him, he understood something. All he had to do, being Jewish, was look in and he saw that and he realized, huh, where Jesus had laid. It looks just like the Ark of the Covenant. And all they saw were the grave, loaves, the grave cloths lying there. And it was as if the blood has been sprinkled, the sacrifice has been made, and he's risen from the dead. It's finished. When he sat down, at the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 4, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. The name of Jesus is not Michael. Do you understand that? A number of the cults say that his name is Michael, the archangel. Have you not ever read verse 4? 
He has inherited a name that is above every name. The book of Revelation says that in the kingdom age it will be revealed to the faithful ones in Philadelphia, Jesus' new name. Look at Revelation just for a second, chapter 3. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write upon him the name of my God, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and my new name. Not only is the name of Jesus exalted on this earth, but there is a name that God has given to Jesus that he's going to reveal to you. Faithful ones who are watching and ready for his appearing when he comes very soon to catch us up to be with him. Wow. That's Hebrew for hallelujah. What an excellent name, the name of Jesus. Lord, we praise your name. The name that brings heaven to its knees. The name that demons shudder before. The name that saves and heals and convicts and converts and consoles comforts Jesus we love your name we acknowledge that you are the very radiance of God that you are God's exact representation that all the glory and the fullness of God dwells in you. And we worship you, Jesus. We thank you that you would make yourself known to us. We thank you that you are God's last word to us. Lord, we don't want any other words. You're enough. Thank you for the sufficiency of your salvation. Lord, we say you are better. You're better. You're the best.
ask you and I wanna be listening to Unity in Christ, the English Hour in our broadcast program. Download the app for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, available on Play Store and App Store. You can now listen to this week's or past week's programs on your Androids or iPhones 
Just search for Heart and Soul to find it in the store. If you have any questions, please call us at 602-866-8999 or heartandsoul.org at gmail.com. That's H-E-A-R-T-A-N-D-S-E-O-U-L dot org at gmail.com. Following is a program titled, The Lord is My Shepherd, where we learn about our Lord who is our shepherd through Psalm chapter 23. Hello everyone, this is Jim Hughes with The Lord is My Shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Psalm 23, verses 1 through 3. From this passage, we think of God, who is our good shepherd, described in the beginning of the third verse as he who restores my soul. The last time we were together, we looked at the shepherd who restores the soul of the sheep that is turned over on its stomach and unable to right himself and is dying. And this reminds us of our God who revives our souls fallen over and dying in our sins. I pray that you and I cling to God, our good shepherd who revives our souls. Today we're going to share the ending of the third verse, which reads, He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Sheep are known to follow familiar habits. So if the sheep is left to do whatever it wants, it will only walk on the same road which will eventually wear the road out. The sheep will eat grass from the same spot over and over again, such that it depletes the ground. Also, they will excrete their feces in a single spot, resulting in that place becoming full of parasites and eventually diseases. Indeed, beautiful farms around the world have become devastated and worthless due to the mismanagement of these infectious and dirty sheep. This kind of situation usually happens when the sheep are managed by hired shepherds. Those shepherds usually leave the sheep to do whatever they want and let them cause the devastation. If the sheep are left in this way, the shepherds and the sheep gain nothing but poverty and disaster. Often, Sheep are thought to be able to live anywhere they are put, but they are not. There is no other livestock that needs more attention and protection from their owner than the sheep. Entire regions have been ruined by these habits of the sheep. Areas quickly become impoverished and contaminated. In instances of mismanaged sheep, 
Eventually, the entire population of sheep gets infected with skin diseases because of parasites, and all the sheep die. Such situations result in failure to the owner, to the land, and to the sheep. So the truly good shepherds do not leave the sheep in the way they are naturally inclined to go. They're not just concerned about the sheep's health or condition, but also concerned about their reputations as shepherds. This is no doubt true, right? If a shepherd loses his sheep and the land and has nothing left over, he will probably have a bad reputation. So, good shepherds don't let their sheep stay in one place. They make their sheep move around. Sheep regularly have to be moved to feed from one plant height to another, and the shepherds make sure that the sheep aren't eating only from one spot. Also, if the land presents risk of the sheep becoming infected, the shepherd makes sure to move on to somewhere else before the sheep suffers. A good shepherd keeps these things in his plan and is prepared to put them into action. The shepherds, in making these plans, must know all the advantages and disadvantages of the terrain or pastures in certain areas, as well as the places where there are lots of grasslands and places where there is not. Good shepherds know all these things and act according to that knowledge. When considering the Good Shepherd's characteristics, can you see a parallel with God, our Good Shepherd, and us, the self-destructive sheep? Just as those silly and greedy sheep eat all the grass in front of them without thinking ahead, so we live as if we will live on earth forever and grab onto everything in front of us without thinking about heaven. Can you see yourself seeking to widen the boundaries of your pasture with your heart troubled with the thought that others might steal what is yours? And just like the sheep that prefer to only walk the same path, we tend to settle into our current living pattern without listening to God's voice that guides us to a new vision. And like the sheep, When we begin to settle in our comfort zone, we can be exposed to all sorts of dirty things that threaten to contaminate us. We often see examples of groups of faith communities and churches that are said, for example, to be successful at spiritual revival, becoming corrupted when they try to continue in their comfortable practices. In Matthew 17, Peter was present on the Mount of Transfiguration where he saw the glorious appearance of Jesus. And he said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. This is recorded in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 4. How happy Peter must have been when he saw the glorious appearance of Jesus 
and the appearances of Moses and Elijah. I would have said the same. I would have pleaded with Jesus, saying, Jesus, it's so good to be here. Could we please let me stay and live here? But we know that Jesus didn't allow it. He brought his disciples down from that mountain. God does not let us stay and settle into one place for so long because that is not good for our spiritual health. We are all like sheep. So if we are in a comfortable state, even for a little while, we stop our journey of faith and become sickened in that place. Would you agree? Have you ever thought things like, oh, I want to always live just the way I live now. But if we ever live that way, do you think we will be able to look only to God, rejoice in God, and focus on God? Don't we know ourselves well enough to answer? That's right. We never look intently for Jesus in our comfortable state. God guides us to the next step when we remain in our comfort zones because his purpose for us is not just letting us live nicely in the present and then bringing us to heaven. But it is to let us grow to become a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ through sanctification. This is the way of righteousness, namely the right way, the straight way. Our Lord leads us to the right way and the way of righteousness. But why does he bring us in the way of righteousness? Yes, correct. He guides us to the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. God does so for his own name. In the Bible, we find instances where God delays his wrath on the Israelites who deserve to die and changes his mind for his name's sake. Listen to Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, and they rejected my ordinances, by which if a man observes them, he will live and my Sabbaths they greatly profaned. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them in the wilderness to annihilate them. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations before whose sight I had brought them out. And then in verse 22, But I withdrew my hand and acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I had brought them out. Also, in Isaiah chapter 48, and verses 8 and 9, we read, You have not heard, you have not known. Even from long ago your ear has not been open, because I knew that you would deal very treacherously, And you have been called a rebel from birth. For the sake of my name, I delay my wrath. And for my praise, I restrain it for you. 
in order not to cut you off. Despite their complete betrayal and distrust toward the God of Israel, God delayed his wrath toward his people and did not cut them off for the sake of his own name and his glory. We do not receive mercy and grace from God because we deserve them, nor because we did good things. It is because God remembers his promises to the Israelites, and he doesn't want to bring dishonor to himself, being called a God who breaks his promise. Still today, God leads us to the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That is the way his name is lifted high and his glory shown. I pray that each of us will follow his guidance. Please join me again next time as we continue with The Lord is My Shepherd.
The Apostle Paul, in his letter to the Corinthian church, said that Christians have a fragrance within them that cannot be hidden, and that fragrance is the fragrance of Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, For we are a fragrance of Christ to God, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? We give much worship and spend a good amount of time at church. Some people are part of the choir, some serve as a Sunday school teacher, and many others are involved in some aspect of the church. All these are all precious and valuable servings. If we are not living out as a divine fragrance of Christ, and if I am not living as a true Christian, then aren't our servings and our volunteering at church worthless? What can I do to live as a witness of Christ? I pray that we all may live as a living, pleasing aroma of Christ. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time again next week, and God bless. I'm forgiven because you were forsaken, and I'm accepted. You were condemned, and I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Day.